Volume Three, Chapter One of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume Three, Chapter One. Time and chance are but a tide. Burns. Between aspiration and achievement, there is no great gulf fixed. God does not mock His children by putting a lying spirit in the mouth of their prophetic instincts. Only the faith of concentrated endeavour, only the stern years which must hold fast the burden of a great hope, only the patience, strong and meek, which is content to bow beneath the fatigue of a long and distant purpose, only these stepping-stones, and no gulf impassable by human feet, divide aspiration from achievement. To aspire is to listen to the word of command. To achieve is to obey and to continue to obey that voice. It is given to all to aspire. Few allow themselves to achieve. John had begun to see that. If he meant to achieve anything, it was time he put his hand to the plough. He had listened and learned long enough. "'My time has come,' he said to himself, as he sat alone in the library at Overley on the first day of the new year. "'I am twenty-eight. I have been promising long enough.' The time of promise is past. I must perform, or the time of performance will pass me by. He knit his heavy brows. I must act, he said to himself, and I cannot act. I must work, and I cannot work. Tom was conscious of having had, he still had, high ambitions, deep enthusiasms. Yet, lo, all his life seemed to hinge on the question whether Di would become his wife. Who has not experienced, almost with a sense of traitorship to his own nature, how the noblest influences at work upon it may be caught up into the loom of an all-absorbing personal passion, adding a new beauty and dignity to the fabric, but nevertheless changing for the time the pattern of the life? John's whole heart was set on one object. There is a rubicon in the feelings to pass which is to cut off retreat. John had long passed it. "'I cannot do two things at the same time,' he said. "'I will ask Mrs. Courtney and Di here for the hunt-ball, "'and settle matters one way or the other with Di. "'After that, whether I succeed or fail, "'I will throw myself heart and soul into the career that is prophesied for me. "'The general election comes on in the spring. "'I'll stand then.' "'John wrote a letter to the minister who had such a high opinion of him, "'or perhaps of his position, "'preserved a copy, pigeonholed it, and put it from his mind.' His thoughts reverted to Di as a matter of course. He had seen her several times since the fancy ball. Each particular of those meetings was noted down in the unwritten diary which contains all that is of interest in our lives, which no friend need be entreated to burn at our departure. He was aware that a subtle change had come about between him and Di, that they had touched new ground. If he had been in love before, which of course he ought to have been, he would have understood what that change meant. As it was, he did not. No doubt he would be wiser next time. Yet even John, creeping mole-like through self-made labyrinths of conjecture one inch below the surface, asked himself whether it was credible that Di was actually beginning to care for him. When he knew for certain she did not, there seemed no reason that she should not. Now that he was insane enough to imagine she might, he was aware of a thousand deficiencies in himself which made it impossible. And yet... 
So he wrote another letter, this time to Mrs. Courtney, inviting her and I to the Hunt Ball in his neighbourhood at the end of January. And his invitation was accepted. And one, if not two persons, perhaps even a third old enough to know better, began the unprofitable task of counting days. It was an iron winter. It affected Fritz's health deleteriously. His short legs raised him but little above the surface of the earth, and he was subject to chills and cramps owing to the constant contact of the under-portion of his long ginger person with the snow. Not that there was much snow. One steel and iron frost succeeded another. Lindo, on the contrary, found the cold slight compared with the two winters which he had passed in Russia with John. His wool had been allowed to grow, to the great relief of Mitty, who could not abide the bareback state which the exigencies of fashion required of him during the summer. It was a winter not to be forgotten, a winter such as the oldest people at Overley could hardly recall. As the days in the new year lengthened, the frost strengthened, as the saying goes. The village beck at Overley froze. By and by the great rivers froze. Carts went over the Thames. Someone, fonder of driving than of horses, drove a four-in-hand on the ice at Oxford. The long lake below Overley Castle, which had formerly supplied the moat, was frozen feet thick. The little islands of the boathouse were lapped in ice. It became barely possible, as the days went on, to keep one end open for the swans and ducks. The herons came to divide the open space with them. Great frost of 1821 was not one that would be quickly forgotten. John kept open house, for the ice at Overley was the best in the neighbourhood, and all the neighbours within distance thronged to it. Mothers drove over with their daughters, for skating is a healthy pursuit, and those that can't skate can learn. The most inaccessible hunting men, rendered desperate like the herons by the frost, turned up regularly at Overley to play hockey, or emulate John's figure-skating, which by reason of long practice in Russia was bad to beat. John was a conspicuous figure on the ice, in his furred Russian coat lined with sable paws, in which he had skated at the ice carnivals at St. Petersburg. Mitty, with bright winter apple cheeks and a splendid new beaver muff, would come down to watch her darling wheel and sweep. "'If the frost holds, I will have an ice carnival when dies here,' John said to himself, and after that he watched the glass carefully. The day of Di's arrival drew near, came, and actually Di with it. She was positively in the house. Archie came the same day, but not with her. Archie had invariably shown such a marked propensity for travelling by any train except that previously agreed upon, when he was depended on to escort his sister, that after a long course of irritation Mrs. Courtney had ceased to allow him to chaperone Di, to the disgust of that gentleman, who was very proud of his ornamental sister, when she was not in the way, and who complained bitterly at not being considered good enough to take her out. So Mrs. Courtney, who had accepted for the sake of appearances, but who had never had the faintest intention of leaving her own fireside in such inhuman weather, discovered a tendency to bronchitis, and failed at the last moment, confiding Di to the charge of Miss Fane, who good-naturedly came down from London to assist John in entertaining his guests. And still the following day the frost held. The hunt-ball had dwindled to nothing in comparison with the ice-carnival at Overley the night following the ball. 
the whole neighbourhood was ringing with it. Such a thing had never taken place within the memory of man at Overley. The neighbours, the tenantry, cottagers and all were invited. The hockey-players rejoiced in the rumour that there would be hockey by torchlight, with goals lit up by flambeau and a phosphorescent bum. Would the frost hold? That was the burning topic of the day. There was a large house-party at Overley, a throng of people who in Di's imagination existed only during certain hours of the day, and melted into the walls at other times. They came and went, and skated and laughed, and wore beautiful furs, especially Lady Alice Fane, but they had no independent existence of their own. The only real people among the crowd of dancing, skating shadows were herself and John, with whom all that first day she had hardly exchanged a word. To her relief, was it, or her disappointment? After tea she went up with Miss Fane to the low entresol room, which had been set apart for that lady's use, to help her to rearrange the men's buttonholes, which John had pronounced to be too large. As soon as Di took them in hand, Miss Fane, of course, discovered, as was the case, that she was doing them far better than she could herself, and presently trotted off on the pretext of seeing to some older lady who did not want seeing to, and did not return. Di was not sorry. She arranged the bunches of lilies of the valley at leisure, glad of the quiet interval after a long and unprofitable day. Presently the person of whom she happened to be thinking happened to come in. He would have been an idiot if he had not, though I regret to be obliged to chronicle that he had had doubts on the subject. "'I thought I should find Aunt Lou here,' he said, rather guiltily, for falsehood sat ungracefully upon him. And he looked round the apartment as if she might be concealed in a corner. "'She was here a moment ago,' said Di, and she began to assort the flowers all over again. "'The frost shows no signs of giving.' "'I am glad.' After the frost John found nothing further of equal originality to say, and presently he sat down, neither near to her nor very far away, with his chin in his hands, watching her wire her flowers. The shaded light dealt gently with the folds of Di's amber tea-gown, and touched the lowest ripple of her yellow hair. She dropped a single lily, and he picked it up for her, and laid it on her knee. It was a day of little things, the little things love glorifies. He did not know that his attitude was that of a lover, did not realise the inference he would assuredly have drawn if he had seen another man sit as he was sitting then. He had forgotten all about that. He thought of nothing, neither thought of anything in the blind, unspeakable happiness and comfort of being near each other, and at peace with each other. Afterwards, long afterwards, John remembered that hour with a feeling as of a paradise lost that had been only half realised at the time. He wondered how he had borne such happiness so easily, why no voice from heaven had warned him to speak then, or hereafter for ever hold his peace. Yet at the time it had seemed only the dawning of a coming day, the herald of a more sure and perfect joy to be. The prophetic conviction had been at the moment too deep for doubt that there will be many times like that. Many times, he'd thought, lying awake through the short winter night after the ball. John had discovered that to be alternately absolutely certain of two opposite conclusions without being able to remain in either is to be in a state of doubt. 
he found he could bear that blister as ill as most men. "'I will speak to her the morning after the carnival,' he said, "'when all this tribe of people have gone. "'What is the day going to be like?' "'He got up and unbarred his shutter and looked out. "'The late grey morning was shivering up the sky. "'The stars were white with cold. "'The frost had wrought an ice fairyland on the lattice. "'While that fragile web held against the pane, "'the frost that wrapped the whole country would hold also.' End of Volume 3, Chapter 1